So as you're turning to Ecclesiastes 5 and beginning in verse 8, uh, we're going to do something a little different with the way the sermon's going to be structured. We're getting to this part of Ecclesiastes, if you remember, a couple, about a month ago when we took a break, where we're going to get into general wisdom literature, wise sayings about how to live life or the folly of trying to live life without God. And one of the ways that the authors of ancient scripture would write is something called a chiastic structure. It's this beautiful way of writing so that you have a points basically ascending a ladder and you'll have you know point A, point B, and then you'll get to the climax, the point of what the author's trying to say. And then he'll go and make parallel points kind of descending down from that. In the ancient Near East, this was a really common way of driving home important points that the authors wanted you to get your attention. In our Western context, we don't really follow that as much. We want the climax to be like the ending, the main point, the thing we can walk away and take home with us. So we're going to be kind of, for each point, bouncing between part of chapter 5 and part of chapter 6. And I hope that I'll preach it in such a way that I won't lose any of you. Uh, and I hope I won't. So turn your attention to the reading of God's word, Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is a vanity. When goods increase, they increase, the, uh, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And worse, he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. 
Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a striving after win. Let's pray. Lord, there is hard words in this passage about excess, about greed, about wealth, about failure to enjoy and appreciate good things, and failure to trust in hard things. I pray, Father, this word today would touch hearts. Would it be convicting? Would it also be comforting? As I preach today, Lord, may the word of God be magnified, the Son of God glorified, and the people of God edified. Amen. So, uh, in the hit 1987 film, Wall Street, anybody remember Wall Street? Michael Douglas plays Gordon Gekko, the slick millionaire bent on only one thing. He wants to acquire as much wealth, as much power as he can possibly get his hands on. And he gets a pretty big reputation that he will buy up you know, companies that are in trouble, he'll become the major shareholder, and then he'll sell them off to make even more profit, but usually leaving everyone that worked there absolutely without employment and sometimes broke. And at one point in the movie, to get us acquainted with Gordon Gecko, we see him in action. He's at a shareholders meeting for a company called Teldar Paper. And it's in the scene that he gives his most famous little speech. It's also what most people remember about the movie is because of one line in it. And this is what Gordon Gecko says. I'm not a destroyer of companies. I'm a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed, in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Greed is good was the tagline of Wall Street, and it kind of embodied the 80s big stock uh, market surge. But that's a fictional character who did things that really did happen. There's another more realistic and recent person who made a lot of money off a lot of heartache. His name is Michael Burry. He's a famous hedge, manager, uh, hedge fund manager. In 2005, he discovered that the subprime mortgage market that so many Americans were using to purchase homes was going to crash. So he came up with an idea. He went to all the big banks and investors, and he, did, he proposed to them what's called a short sale. Like most of the time when you buy stocks, the way you make your money is by the company succeeding and going, going increasing in value. Burry noticed that there was a problem, that the greed of the American consumer was spending too much on homes they couldn't afford, and the greed of big banks were welcoming the money and not rejecting anybody that applied for these outrageous loans. He was betting that nobody would intercede for these people. He was betting the government would fail them, that our own greed would fail us, and that we would just keep buying and buying and buying. And the banks thought Burry 
was not wise. So of course they took the bet. The market is not going to crash. But to take the bet, he had to pay these really high premiums from all the people giving him money. He eventually gets sued because two or three years go by and nothing's happened. He gets sued by his investors, sued by his business partner. And then in 2007 and 8, the housing market crashed. Burry's short sale took effect. He made $2.69 billion for betting on heartache and greed. And it paid off. That's $2.69 billion, including all those high, high premiums that he paid that his investors got mad about. That's still the profit after spending all that money. And he made personally $489 million. Are the geckos and burries of the world right? Is greed good? Is our happiness dependent on what we accumulate or where or do? Is that the secret to truly living a good and happy life? Well, we're going to see here that the preacher was well acquainted with greed and excess and hard work and the vanity of pursuing that as the ultimate goal in life. And it's not an indictment on hard work, we're going to be clear about that, but it is a soul check on our culture and our own hearts that want to define success and happiness on material things. So let's look at the first major point of the preacher. The vanity of wealth cannot satisfy us. Look with me at verses 8 through 9 of chapter 5. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land, for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Might seem weird to begin this vanity of wealth by dealing with the poor and government, but it also kind of makes sense. I mean, bureaucracy is a good way to wear people down. And almost every commentator that I consulted would say that this section is dealing with oppression by bureaucracy. That is what it's meant, that we will see the poor being taken advantage of or not actually being helped, even while there's apparently official upon official who's overseeing all of this. You know, in order to make a centralized government work, we do need people like overseeing forms and we need city halls and governments. But we can also have all experienced the difficulty of trying to navigate something as simple as like getting your driver's license or doing a name change or um, applying for Medicaid or Medicare, anything like that, where we start to get bogged down in details and processes of did you submit that? You forgot Form 98B, you need Form 91C. It wears people down and it creates problems of does it actually help these people? Is there going to be any liberation for them? The preacher doesn't give us much hope of that. He says, do not be amazed. This is not a call to fight for justice. There is no utopian scheme in his mind. Again, we're looking at the world as it really is. There are going to be poor among us always, Jesus said. And this is a heartache, and it's something we can be sad about. But there's an interesting contrast here, because in verse 9 it does say, this is a gain. This is something good for a land, a king committed to cultivated fields. 
as much injustice as might happen in a community or in a government, as much the poor may be taken advantage of, the solution to it isn't anarchy. That we can actually still look and hope for a good king who would take care of fields and lands for us. One of the commentators that I read post pointed out that in the ancient Near East and the agricultural world that they would have inhabited, the idea behind this could have been that there are poor people who had fields that had been bought by the government and then they didn't develop them. They just bought up the land and didn't produce anything. And the king, a good king, looks at this and says, that's not right. I have people that want to work but don't have jobs and I have this opportunity right here. So it is good that the king comes and says, I'll cultivate the field because if I'm going to do it, the king's not actually going to get his hands dirty, but he's going to hire the people, the poor of his community, to go and do the work. And in that ancient culture, they would have gotten food, they would have gotten housing, they would have been provided for. So oppression by bureaucracy is a way of our own government taking advantage of the wealth and pursuing just more and more increase in government spending or in accumulating taxes or whatever. But then it moves into something a little bit more personal. Look at verses 10 and chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 5, 10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his own income. This also is vanity. And then in uh, 6, verse 7, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. The language, satisfaction, appetite, desire. In the Hebrew, the the word for satisfied is the same word for consuming, for being filled up, for, for eating. The picture is vivid of somebody that thinks that they will be full by, you know, actually getting what they want, only to discover that it didn't satisfy them. There's nothing that can satisfy them. They need to increase more and more of purchasing or consuming or eating. Money becomes something that distracts us from God. The love of it drives us to want it more and more, and then we're never actually filled up with it. There's nothing that, we, that will satisfy the urges of just our purchasing. And Jesus talks about this a lot. In fact, as we go through this, you'll see Jesus, uh, or hear echoes of what Jesus would teach us about money. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Paul wrote that uh, money is the root of all kinds of evil, and a craving, a desiring, a consuming of it can lead, had led many to fall away from the faith. Money doesn't just control us. It actually consumes us. It feeds off of our own desires and wants by promising that if we finally get X, if we finally get the new pickup truck, if we finally get the new car or the right clothes, we will be fulfilled and you know, we'll feel better about ourselves. Derek Kidner, uh, a great Old Testament scholar who has just a punchy and concise way of putting things, commented on this verse. If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. There's a, a movie that wasn't very good, but it was called A Good Year. It had Russell Crowe in it. He plays, yet again, another stockbroker, banker guy who does all sorts of really shady deals and uh, with, with spending and, and gets 
really carried away with just the excess of, the, of his business. And he ends up getting told that he has to take some time off of work while people are investigating him. And he has this whole life transforming vacation in the Provence of France, all this romantic comedy stuff. And at the end of the movie, he's starting to realize that everything that he had once valued, the cars, the wine, the money, was just not fitting in with this beautifully simple life he was living in France on vacation. He was actually happy. He actually laughed. He enjoyed just walking. He didn't have to worry about the up-and-coming kid who's trying to take his job. He didn't have to worry about where he was being seen to eat at dinner that night. He was actually enjoying a bit of freedom and delighting in life a whole lot more. Well, he gets back, called back to the office, and he is pretty sure he's going to get fired. But instead, he gets offered a promotion for being basically duplicitous and doing bad business deals. But they decided it was aggressive. They decided it was cunning. It was cutthroat. And he's given a moment to think about it. And as he's sitting in this conference room, he notices this really famous painting. And he asks the boss about the painting. And he says, the boss says, well, that's not the real painting. The real painting is at home in my vault. Why would I put out the real painting here? I, I keep it at home in private. And he says, do you ever go and look at the real painting? No. It's just there so everyone knows, you know, I, I could buy this, and I've got the real one put away. This man had all this wealth, all this money, and he consumes it and even flaunts it and shows it out there, but he still wants more, and he's even willing to keep taking back this Russell Crowe guy who's continuing to be duplicitous and doing bad business deals. Money cannot satisfy our egos, our pride, our well-being. It will only ever consume us. And it also doesn't ever really solve all of our problems. Look at verse 11 with me. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And then in chapter 6, verse 8, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man who ha uh, who the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? An increase of wealth can increase dependence and hangers-on. There used to be a popular show on HBO called Entourage. It was all about the, ha the Hollywood glamour life of you know, celebrities and this and that. But the whole point of the entourage was the more money these guys got, the more and more people gathered around them that just wanted things. You think about the adage of, you know, if you win the lottery, you don't tell anybody because all of a sudden you have your second cousin twice removed showing up asking, you know, hey, could I borrow $50,000 or could I get this or that? But an increase in money also creates the problem of you just keep having to, to spend it, right? When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? You have to keep spending to get into the right clubs or to be part of the right vacations. And more and more people become dependent on you, which means that if you fail, you let more and more people down. So the only way to not fail and let people down is to consume more, work harder, get more, do whatever it takes to keep the level of living that you've gotten accustomed to and everyone around you up. And do you really come out ahead? That was the point of 6-8, where they compare a wise man to a poor man. Does the wise man, and in the Hebrew scriptures, that the wise man is also a, cue for, or a clue for somebody of wealth. A wise person is somebody who is smart with their money, who has had uh, good business deals, who knows what they're doing. So the wise person is a, a wealthy person. 
they really have an advantage in life? Do they come out ahead after everything is said and done? Or what about a poor man who's trying to walk in such a way that he can make something better of himself? Do either of these men come to anything? Will the money that they pursue solve any of their problems? And the question is left out there because, will it? Can the wise man who gains all this wealth ever be happy with it? Or will he, like it said in verse 10, continually want to consume more? And then we get into this irony of the excesses of what we consume in verse 12 of chapter 5. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I mean, you can get the visual, right? Somebody, one of the few mercies a laborer might have is they have to work all day. They're working the the seven to six o'clock shift. Maybe they go home, eat, and they go work a nine to midnight shift only to wake up in the morning and do it all again. While the wealthy person maybe comes in at 10 o'clock, they're in the office for a little while, they fire off a few emails, they might manage a few people, they're back home by five or six o'clock, they spend several hours relaxing, go to bed, wake up and do the next thing. But the laborer is going to enjoy a good night's sleep because they are physically exhausted from all the running around and working. How many of the wealthy people, those who have much uh, excess, have trouble sleeping, have anxiety, drink in excess? The, the, the visual here, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The, the visual is that this person has consumed so much, literally, of feasting at a table, whether it's through wine or food or, you know, hummus, and he is so now full that he can't sleep at night. He's rocking around. He's got a stomachache because he's gorged himself so much. It made me think of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Augustus Glop. Augustus was the uh, little Austrian boy who was obsessed with chocolate, and so when he walks into the Chocolate Factory, he sees this river of chocolate, and he just you know, dives right into it. He starts eating it all up. Wonka tries to get him to stop doing it. Augustus falls in and then he gets sucked up the tube and, uh, you know, shot in and he has to get caught before he gets sent to the boiler. That was Wonka's concern. But once he's up there at the end of every child's leaving of Willy Wonka, the Oompa Loompas come out and sing a song. This was Augustus Glop's song from the Oompa Loompas. What do you get when you guzzle down sweets? eating as much as an elephant eats. What are you at getting terribly fat? What do you think will come of that? I don't like the look of it. Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Da. If you're not greedy, you will go far. You, live, you will live in happiness too, like the Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Doo. What are you at getting terribly fat? What do you think will come of that? I don't like the look of it. The consumption of an excess of our culture and what we do to ourselves is called out here. And again, Derek Kinder makes a really great point of this. Whatever discomfort and troubles that may fall to the laborer, the sleep is not one of them. He actually gets to rest. But this makes an unconscious comment of our modern exercise machines and health clubs. For it is one of human absurdities to pour out money and effort just to undo the damage of money and ease. Kidner said that back in 1976. That was the year his commentary came out. I wonder what he would say today 
knowing how much more we're given to excess and also the healthcare industry. Well, not even the healthcare industry, but the exercise industry. Think about this, a Peloton bike. Everyone knows Peloton? They're really famous bikes that also have uh, classes that you can exercise on. A Peloton bike that comes with all of the fixings costs just over $2,000. That's not including the app, which costs $12.99 a month. That's not including the membership to access all of the classes that are advertised, which is $39 a month. There's also a new home gym product that I've seen advertised all over the place. It's called Tonal. It's similar to the Peloton, exercise in the comfort of your home, but all, all the access to this latest and greatest of professional trainers and good equipment. It's sleek, it fixes right on your wall. It, it looks really fancy. It should, because it costs $3,000 to get one of them. Plus $4.95 for all the accessories. And of course, $49 a month for a membership to enjoy all the classes as advertised. I don't care who you are or how wealthy you are, $3,000 for a fixture on the wall of the gym, that's a lot of money. The vanity of pursuing that type of wealth has led to a life of ease, which means you actually have to, in order to stay healthy, you have to spend more money on gyms and uh, diets and machinery that will end up having, you know, you have to spend money on it and then you have to spend money or you have to work harder to get the money back that you spent. We start to go round and round like the wheels of that $2,000 bike chasing happiness. So there's a brief answer that he gives us in chapter 6, verse 9. And it is this. Better. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. It's better for us to just look at the world realistically than constantly dreaming about something else. We should rest content with what lies before us and resist the temptation to wander off in search of more. All of these things are not the dream of like, hey, I just want to have a good house and comforts to live in. It is taking those good things and turning them into idolatry of getting to the good house and then finding, oh, we've quickly outgrown it. We, we don't have enough space anymore. We need, to, we need to move. We need to get to the bigger place now. We need, a, we need a bigger car. We need to go on a more extravagant vacation. Be content with the things that have been given to you. But these are the Proverbs. These are the, the pithy sayings that we should keep in the back of our minds as we look at wealth. There's also stories that he gives. The vanity of wealth, it cannot help us. And here are the anecdotes that he gives for these. Look at five, cha uh, chapter 5, verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days... He eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness and anger. This first antidote is a man who loses everything. And here's an important part, though. He doesn't lose everything because uh, of, like, gambling. We don't, the text doesn't say he was a drunkard. He does, the text doesn't say this man was not wise. In fact, it's implied that he was wise because he has gained all these riches. But what does he lose it in? A bad venture. 
the pain of this is that he's experiencing you know, two losses. He's experiencing the loss of all of his hard work and then the, the loss of he has nothing left to give to anybody. He is now empty as when he came into this world. And that's why the preacher calls it a grievous evil. And he's consumed, just like we had talked about earlier, of how the lust after money and privilege and status consumes us. We aren't the ones that are consuming it. It's literally consuming us. Because in verse 17, it says, all his days he eats in darkness with sickness and anger. I mean, the, he's not literally eating in a house with no lights. But he is so turned off now from those around him. He's so by himself and isolated with just the thoughts of how can I get back everything I worked for? How can I get back to that status that I once had that it consumes him? The second man that the preacher tells us about is in verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. And here I'll just summarize that this was the man that God gives wealth and possessions and honor, and he doesn't lack anything. If he wants it, he gets to have it, and that's God's gift to him. But there's a heartache with it. He doesn't get the opportunity to enjoy it. Something happens to him. It could be a sickness that takes him, like cancer. He could be hit by a bus. He could be cut down in the prime of his life. The point is that this man worked all these years to achieve something, make something of himself, and he doesn't get a chance to enjoy it at all. These first two stories do remind me of Jesus' parable of the rich man who had so much grain, so much wealth, that he didn't know what to do with it. So he actually tears down his barns to build bigger barns to store even more things. And God said to him that night, Fool, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. One of, both these men have lived their lives, accumulated all this wealth, and in one case, they lose everything, and there's nothing left to their children, which in this society would have been horrible. It would have left the, the next generation in a really bad situation. And the next, somebody else gets to enjoy all the labors of his hard work. He doesn't even know the person. But there's a third man who loses everything because of an even sadder reason, and that's in verse 3 of chapter 6. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. This person, this description of what has happened to this man would have been horrifying to everyone gathered hearing the preacher talk. Because, first of all, wealth and power and blessings were associated with having children, right? That's why there's so many stories in the Bible of barren women worried and terrified and pleading to God to bless them with a child because that meant security for them. That meant a future for them. That meant blessings. So we're given this picture of a man who has hundreds of children. I mean, this guy's been very, very blessed. And a long life was viewed as a blessing. And man, the older you got, the more God must absolutely love you. You get to stay here. You're blessed. So he lives a long, long life. But what's his problem? His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And then he has no burial. That would have been huge 
in the ancient Near East. Israel and continuing to Judaism today values very much the burial of a body. If, if you are a Jew and you die, you have 24 hours to bury the body if you're Orthodox. Burial was an important rite in the ancient Near East. This man now has no burial. He's being forgotten in what life there is to come. He might as well be then a stillborn child. So this is a pretty dark antidote. And it starts to shift a little bit of all the focus on just material wealth for something else. This man was not satisfied with the good things. It wasn't the riches. It, wasn't, it was just the daily graces that he got that were not enough. The preacher's point is that this world will wear people out trying to gain and compete for more and more, only to discover that there is no prize for winning in life because you eventually will die. So this can cause people to despair, and we've seen that over the past year. We saw, tragically, suicides go up as we were in lockdown. We saw people suffer with more mental health issues as part of the lockdown. We saw counselors and therapists be getting more and more uh, clients through Zoom calls and things like that because more and more people are isolated and left alone and realize they were suffering and needed help, that they were wondering what is their purpose or meaning in life now that they don't get to have all the things. We have to remember that the preacher is describing the world devoid of God. He is having us think like those who do not live under the sun. But Job and Jeremiah even lamented the days of their birth. And so believers are not unknown to experience this type of despair. But for us, it shouldn't become a norm. For we value life itself as a gift from God by values that transcend death and are greater than a lifetime of pains or pleasures. The secularist, the, the one that the preacher is describing here, they can't fathom that type of life. Right? For the secularist, ultimately, you know, if life is meaningless or if there is this type of despair, if we could make all this money and then we're cut down, or we can make all this money and lose it, what is the point of living? What is the value of someone that may not be able to enjoy life? That's what goes on in our culture right now. What is the value of somebody who is disabled or born with some type of disorder or syndrome? Or as they get older, do we still value them? Or should we just say, you get to call it quits because you might not be able to enjoy life anymore? The Christian faith would say that their existence has value because they're made in the image of God. Their future has value because... As the preacher told us a couple chapters ago, eternity resides in our heart. Ultimately, all these stories that he just talks about, they don't show us what we deserve. We don't actually, we're not, you know, entitled to health, wealth, and happiness. But it does expose needs that we have. It shows us that the world can only offer brief comforts of entertainment or food, but they can't offer anything of ultimate value. And so life can be hostile. To us. And it points out that the world is showing us that it may not be the best place for us to rest, that our ultimate rest is in the eternity that awaits us. Richard Dawkins, several years ago, set off a Twitter storm when he replied to a woman that was struggling with whether or not to abort a child with Down syndrome. Richard Dawkins told her that she would be immoral if she did a not abort that child, because how could he have a happy life? That set off the Twitter storm. 
Dawkins writes an apology a few days later, which was one of those classic, I'm sorry I made you all upset. I'm not really apologizing for what I said. In fact, I'll double down on it. In his apology, he said this, if your morality is based, as mine is, on a desire to increase the sum of happiness and reduce suffering, the decision to deliberately give birth to a Downs baby when you have the choice to abort it early in the pregnancy might actually be immoral from the point of view of the child's own welfare. Dawkins' morality is the secularists in Ecclesiastes. Increase happiness, reduce suffering. But it's not just the morality of the preacher or, or Dawkins. That's what these anecdotes have shown us is, is to challenge this view because these anecdotes show perfectly healthy people pursuing wealth and trying to decrease suffering. And what happens to them? They're cut down in life. They lose everything in a bad venture. A life squandered in vanity, excess, and broken relationships. That, is that really what this is about? Or a child that may not you know, have everything that other children have. But all this shows us the empty pursuit of wealth. But before we move on, I wonder how Dawkins would respond and embrace this morality if he actually had to face somebody with Down syndrome, or if he had to face a young man named Rion Holcomb. He was born with Down syndrome, and a couple of years ago, he graduated from Clemson University's two-year pro, uh, life program for men and women with Down syndrome. He was interviewed for the Today Show uh, for March 21st, which is International Down Syndrome Day. And this is what Rion told the Today Show that he would like people to know about having Down syndrome. He said, I have a great life. I'm happy. I do things on my own. I have a girlfriend that I love. I love my job. I have great friends. His mom added what she would want people to know about children and parents who have, are parents of children with Down syndrome. Rion always smiles and will randomly say, I have a great life. That alone is what he would want people to know. For Dawkins, for the, the, the secularists, the only way you could have a happy life is if you get all the wealth, all the goods, nothing happens to you. But ultimately, that is not going to satisfy you. It'll lead you to what happens when everything goes wrong. What happens when you do get cut down? What happens when you do lose your investments? What happens when you do get sick? It cannot give us meaning, and it may even drive us to despair in either its pursuit or in recognizing the meaninglessness, meaninglessness of life itself. So what then is of ultimate value? And the preacher gets to the climax in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. It's that the vanity of wealth cannot compare to the riches of Christ. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone else to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So here we actually see when it says uh, that I have seen to be good and fitting, the Hebrew literally says good and beautiful. It's to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Enjoy the good things, the, the easy, simple things for the few days of your life because they're a gift from God. The poor are less well off. They can find enjoyment in their labor, he's saying, because the contentment in life that they have is a gift from God as much as any riches. 
And then the wealthy, those that get the wealth and the possessions and the power to enjoy them, that's okay too. He's not bashing people that are wealthy. Some of the most, the reason we have Christian seminaries and institutions are because of wealthy believers who gave to those endeavors, who actually gave their money to benefit others. The reason we have great uh, missions agencies, healthcare, Christian healthcare providers, is because people, believers, give of their money sacrificially to increase those blessings. So wealth is a good thing if it is not your only thing. Derek Kinder again said this, the secret to life is openness to him, that is God, ready to accept what comes to us as a gift, whether it is toil or wealth or both. Jesus taught us that it is greater to deny ourselves, take our cross, and follow him. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Our lives are a gift from God, full stop. What can be more important, more valuable than that alone? So to close, what, how do we stay content? How, what is it that we do with all of these proverbs and anecdotes and hard sayings? How do we enjoy a good life? How do we enjoy the good things and not get caught up in the excesses of life? Well, a great Puritan wrote a book about contentment. His name is Jeremiah Burroughs. He said this, Grace teaches such a mixture. It teaches us how to make, mix a mixture of sorrow and joy together. And that makes contentment. The mingling of joy and sorrow, of gracious joy and gracious sorrow together. It teaches us how to moderate and to order an affliction so that there shall be sense of it. And yet for all that, contentment in it. If we are going to be occupied with joy, like the preacher tells us is a gift from God, that he will occupy us with the joy in our heart, we must be the most content people in the world and the most unsatisfied in the world. Now, this whole thing has been trying to satisfy something, right? I wanted to be satisfied with my wealth, with food, with comforts. And now I'm saying part of this is being unsatisfied. And it's true. The, all these Proverbs and antidotes have shown us that, the world will, uh, that what the world finds satisfaction in cannot actually provide our soul's satisfaction. It will always leave us empty. So if we desire to be truly occupied and thankful for the good things God gives us, we need to be content with what he has given us first and unsatisfied with what the world will offer. We need to be content with whatever God gives us, the good and the bad. We can be satisfied in God alone who gives us all of the good things. And we need to be people who gain through subtraction. I'll close with this. Jesus, uh, we, we kind of get this from his teaching, but Paul talks about it in Acts 20 through 35. He says that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And then in his letter to the second Corinthians, he says, God blesses a cheerful giver. I've met people that have started off their careers maybe in poverty or you know, not as great uh, as success who all of a sudden through God's you know, blessings and their hard work, they become quite successful. Those are some of the most generous people I've met. They will give the shirt off their back for people. They fund missionaries. They keep giving, you know, not just tithes to church, but extra income. Uh, I get to work for somebody who I see model that. My father-in-law has had a very successful business. It didn't start off so successful. He'll be the first to tell you that. 
but it's become more successful. And the way I see him do this in action, the way I know that money isn't possessing him, but Christ possesses him, is the way he deals with the people that come into our store, and we get lots of them, that aren't doing as well. You know, they're, they're the people that come in and say, I need to know exactly how much the trailer panel to get the power hooked up for my trailer is going to cost because I can't, I can't go over a certain amount. And I see him and some of the other employees that have learned under him do what it takes. They'll even break them down to a lower contractor pricing where we're not making anything because that person needs it and he's had enough. It's time to be a blessing. That's the secret to having a life, of being content, of having enough. And it's because we have eternity, we're looking forward to something greater, greater blessings than this life can offer. And if our life is filled with sorrow and pain, because not everyone's life is, is a great time, there's something much more beautiful offered there, actual rest. And we'll get to taste it and see it when we come to the table. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for these words of 